All right, if you'll open up to Genesis chapter 2, I'd like to look in our first session here at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And in this session, I want to talk about, as you can see in your itinerary there, sort of the intended design uh, of God's purpose and function for the marriage relationship. So let me read verses 18 down through verse 25. It says to us this, God instituting a marriage relationship, the Lord God said, Genesis 2.18, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to the cattle, the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. You know, important to recognize as we look at this first passage together regarding God's institution of the marriage relationship that prior to sin entering into our world, marriage was given. That is, prior to the influence of sin coming in, and of course, the distortion of what's right and best is always what happens when sin enters into the picture. God, notice, utilizing his great wisdom and understanding how he perfectly created the man, as well as perfectly creating the woman, established a marriage relationship with the absolute best intention in mind for our experience as a man and a woman in the marriage relationship. Yet the entrance of sin, of course, into the human race, which happens in chapter 3, ultimately deceives and defiles, and it ultimately distorts, uh, sadly, much of what God's original design was for the marriage relationship. Uh, It causes a lot of confusion in regards to what really is the purpose of marriage, what's the way of functioning properly in marriage, and a lot of that's been distorted, I believe, today in people's attitudes, in their mindsets, their ideas about marriage, and even really in a lot of what goes on in the practice of marriage relationships among people. What I want to do, if you can, let me read to you what I just kind of assembled as a definition here on the front side as we look at this passage. Looking at God's design for marriage, this is kind of what I wrote down regarding a definition, you might say, of what I see God's design of marriage to be. It's where two lives, one male and female, distinctively different by gender design as well as in personal uniqueness would be united together in a lifelong commitment to each other to experience completely shared life in every capacity as they function as life partners in order to help one another in their journey until death. And when that takes place, the result is two people end up doing better functioning together than they would if they tried to journey through life and live out their existence on their own. And that's really what I see conveyed by God as he institutes the marriage relationship. Again, by way of backdrop, which is important looking at this passage, remember Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the account of the creation of all things, where God creates the heavens and the earth, and then, of course, ultimately creating mankind, which are created in God's image 
which means that we have similar attributes uh, that God possesses as our creator, allowing us, of course, the ability to have relationship both with God as well as relationship with other people. And God's intentional design from the start before sin defiled anything, it's very, very evident, was that there would be two different genders. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, specifically says, as God created human beings in his likeness, it says male and female, he created them. Two genders, male and female, God created them, and males are designed by God purposely to have distinct masculine qualities, to function in a way that is masculine, the way God intends for a man to function. According to that genetic makeup, we are hardwired with a certain reason and purpose to be masculine in the way that a male is supposed to be. And in the same way, in God's wisdom, God designed females. And purposely, by design, he hardwired them as well to have certain distinct feminine qualities to function in a feminine way with unique differences. And that femininity was intentionally hardwired with purpose. And God created those two gender distinctions with the understanding that that's what would be best for two life partners to function together, to experience the best fulfillment, to have a healthy marriage relationship, and to be able to be most effective in helping one another. And I bring that to your attention for this reason. Understand our distinct differences in men and women are actually necessary. They're critical. It's important that we recognize that we're supposed to be different because that's what makes us most compatible from God's perspective. So a lot of times we make the mistake, it seems, in marriage relationships, you marry a person and right away you think it's your job from death till do you part to change them. Uh, to be like you, or to think like you, or to behave like you. Well, that's a complete contradiction of everything that God wanted in a marriage relationship. God, by design, made us not like each other because that's what makes us need each other, and ultimately that's what makes us fulfill one another. Now, as you come to chapter 2, you get now the expanded account, really, of God creating not only male and female, but creating the marriage relationship, where we get marital insight by observing God's original design. Remember, God creates Adam, breathes into his nostrils. The Bible says the breath of life. Adam becomes a living being. He has fellowship and relationship with God. He's alive physically. God puts him in a paradise existence, and then God gives him something to do to be constructive. God puts him in a garden. He tells him to work it. And God and man were enjoying direct relationship in a, in a very wonderful way. It says that Adam and God just walked together in the cool of the day. And before I say anything further about marriage, let me bring to your attention once again, before God instituted marriage, the first relationship that existed between a man and anyone else was a man with his God. The very first relationship ever established was man, human beings, experiencing a relationship on the vertical level with their God as their creator. And look, that should always be the primary focus of relational experience in all of our lives still to this day. The very first priority in all of our lives should be experiencing personal relationship with God as our main pursuit because it's from that basis of relationship with God and proper ongoing healthy relationship with God 
that we are able then to have healthy and proper relationships with our spouse and with all other human beings. Because if you haven't noticed yet, God's perfect, people aren't. And the more that I experience a relationship with a perfect God and his fulfillment and what that gives in a perfect relationship, the better I am then able, the better you are then able to have a relationship with an imperfect spouse and not let that rock your world. To have relationship with an imperfect spouse and not expect them to be exactly perfect all the time or to not make mistakes or fall short or disappoint you, the more you're being fulfilled by God, it makes that process much more easy. So the best thing you can do to improve your marriage relationship, no matter what state it's in this morning, is seek to improve your own personal relationship with God because that will always be what changes marriages. No matter where your marriage is at, you can always make your marriage better, not first and foremost by working on your marriage, by working on your relationship with God. You maintain that, you continue to pursue that, and it will have a wonderful effect in your marriage relationship. Well, despite the paradise existence that Adam is in and how wonderfully God created him, an all-wise and all-knowing God says something, look at it in verse 18, about Adam knowing what man would face in life as sin would have an effect upon him and what Adam would ultimately have to experience in his life journey. Notice, it was God looking at Adam and through human history that said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So there's God's evaluation of man living by himself, that it would not be in his best interest, God says. God, from his all-knowing perspective, decided to supply a life partner for man to share his relationship with, knowing everything about how he created man, knowing everything he wanted what was best for man, and knowing everything that he intended for each and every person to go through with our flaws and weaknesses as we journey through life. And it was out of that understanding that God spoke forth and simply said, it's not good. In other words, it wouldn't be ideal. It wouldn't be best, God saying, nor most fulfilling or complete for man to be alone. That is to live independent, to have an independent life, to be by himself without a female life partner to help him in the process. So God saw the incompleteness in Adam's life. God saw that there were certain things that Eve could wonderfully supply to his life. And God says it's just not good and it wouldn't be good for him to be by himself. And it was from that understanding God seeing Adam's desires, anticipating what would be best for him as his creator, establishes the marital relationship by creating Eve. And by way of application for all of us this morning, it's important to recognize that as a married person, uh, nothing has changed through human's history. From God's perspective, knowing you and his assessment about you as a person is exactly the same. And here's what it is. It would not be good for you to live by yourself. It would not have been best for you to do life independent. You would not have experienced the good things that you have, and you would never experience the highest ideal if it were not for God's awareness that it would not be good for you to be alone. And God knows that about each and every one of us. So the point being this, there is a definite need for you to be married. And let me go a step further. There is a definite need for you to be married to the person that you're sitting next to. 
I paid her to do that the whole time. <laughs> God knows everything about us. And because he knows everything about us, we're going to see he knew what would be in our best interest as we journeyed through life. And it's important for us to realize this because it's important to accept that's the reason not only that you're married, but that's the reason that you're actually married to the person you are because you need them. You need to be married to them. And God knows that you need to be married to them. And that's why God orchestrated what he did because it would be most beneficial for you. So whether you fully recognize it or admit it, it's important to realize that because sometimes there can be a temptation in our lives, right, when there are challenges. And all of our marriages go through seasons. We have our struggles. We have times where we go through difficult seasons. And it's in those moments that sometimes we can be tempted by the devil or our own humanity to think it'd be better for us if we weren't attached to this person. Well, look, I can tell you on the authority of God's word, that's a lie. Because God knew it wouldn't be good for you to not be with that person. The reason why God attached you to that person is because to some degree, listen, everybody needs help, right? Just generically. We're all flawed. Nobody's meant to live life alone. We're meant to live relationally, dependent upon other people to some degree, and everybody needs some level of help. So one of the primary reasons God institutes marriage, we start to see from the start, is so that we both might receive help and that we can offer help to another person as a partner. So look at God's solution there in verse 18. He says, this is the solution for my evaluation. I'm going to make, he says, a helper comparable to him. So God creates a helper that's suitable and an adaptable life partner for Adam as he journeys through life. That word helper there speaks of someone who assists or supports another in order to enable them to do their best. And let me just say this morning, the term helper should never be looked at as an inferior term. It should never be looked at as somehow that's a title that speaks of inferiority because the Bible says that God is our helper, and I don't think God's inferior. What the title helper indicates simply is someone who kindly functions in a role to assist someone else, to provide support, to give assistance, and that's what God does for us and what we all at times should be doing for one another. So as God creates the woman, notice his intention was to provide the most appropriate helper that Adam would need in his life to assist him with life experiences, somebody to support him with life responsibilities, somebody to come alongside and help him as he's tending and working the garden and trying to make it produce to provide for the family and doing the things that God's asked him to do, someone who could come alongside knowing that Adam would have his flaws, that sin would affect him, and that he wasn't a perfect individual in his condition as he journeyed through his life, and he created Eve in such a way that she would be able to come alongside and to help and to support in that, to assist him as a partner, enable him to do better so he could achieve life's best. Now, let me just say as well, that attitude should never be taken in a critical or an unkind sense either, which means that you should not be sitting there ever thinking, oh yes, he definitely needs my help. That shouldn't be the mindset there. I'm a helper, all right, because he needed his helper. He needed a little helper. And sometimes that attitude can come to pass. And look, that's not healthy either. But in loving care, it should be, how can I come alongside him so that he can excel? How can I come alongside of him to be able to just support and experience life together so that we can achieve the highest ideal for our family? How can I protect, enlighten the load, and supply what's lacking? 
And notice again, by that term helper there in verse 18, that it is the heart of God in a fundamental sense that that's how we're to function and interact as married couples. The heart of God is that our spouse is someone God brings into our life as a partner to help us and that God brought us into their life to also help them because both men and women need help in their own unique ways. Again, because first of all, we're imperfect. We don't all have the same strengths. We have certain areas of weakness. We need sometimes somebody to watch out for us, to see things from a different perspective, to give us assistance. And men clearly lack certain things that women wonderfully can supply. And women, by the same token, lack certain things that men can wonderfully supply to complement them. So no, God gave me my spouse to be a helper in my life. And I need to humbly be able to respect that. I need to recognize that I need to receive help at times and not think somehow it's not necessary, but to allow God to use my spouse at times to help me. And sometimes in our pride, we can kind of you know, try to defer or work against that. Look, sometimes God's trying to use your spouse to help you, and you need to let them provide the help that God's ultimately trying to bring through them. But on the flip side of that, know as well that our primary function in marriage also should be to try and be above all else a helper to the person that we're married to. Not someone who's focused on complaining about how they don't meet your needs and they're not meeting my expectations, they're not making me happy, but instead intentionally trying to be a servant, trying to be someone who's helping the person that I'm married to. Again, remember Jesus' statement about himself. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Look, that's a great statement to be brought into our marriage roles. I did not get married to be served. I got married to serve. If that switch in our intention can happen, different things can begin to arise in marriage relationships. And I'll tell you, you know, having been married for 25 years and for the past 27 years, you know, doing marital counseling with couples and so forth, I can tell you this. Oftentimes, unhappy married couples are typically very, very focused on how they're being served. And you know that because you sit down with them, and as soon as they start to share what's going on, he basically confesses all of her sins, and then she confesses all of his sins. And you start to see already the problem is is what you're doing is you're focused on they're not doing this, they're not doing that, instead of well, what, what are you trying to do better? How are you trying to make an effort to to be a helper and to assist. So instead of focusing on being served, let's let Jesus' words be our attitude in marriage and seek to be a helper, and not just to be a helper, but it says, verse 18, a helper that's comparable. That is one that matches or corresponds, somebody compatible. And again, I like to see this. When God created Eve and God created Adam, he created a helper that was comparable, somebody that was a compatible partner specifically for them, adapted to complement Adam, adapted to complement Eve, a good addition, not just like you, purposely different from you, but that it would be a good partnership in the process. And that reminds us this, irreconcilable differences are by God's design. A lot of times I, I have couples say that, well, we just have irreconcilable differences. And I say, correct. And you're supposed to have irreconcilable differences. 
First of all, you're a man. She's a woman. That ain't ever changing. You're going to have irreconcilable differences. And then add on top of that the reality that by design, you're just two different people. You were raised in different families. You have a different personality, different temperaments, different ways of looking at things and approaching things. And look, that's good long term. It's actually a good thing to have irreconcilable differences. That's what makes you more compatible, makes you a more you know, efficient partner to complement the other person. It makes you a stronger unit because of what you both bring together in the situation. And a lot of times I use the analogy for you know, Trish and I, I, I jokingly say on occasion that the only two things we have in common are Jesus and our three children. And to some degree, I sincerely mean that. When we first got married, I was on the North Pole, she was on the South Pole. And after 25 years of marriage, we're both a little closer to the equator now. Because when you live together, that's what happens. You begin to recognize there are differences. You actually start to respect and appreciate the differences. And gradually, God uses you to balance out your extremes and to make you a more balanced and well-rounded person. And that comes through the marriage experience and the unique differences. Well, as God makes this declaration in verse 18 about why he was going to establish marriage, verse 19 and 20, of course, give us this kind of peculiar reference to how Adam then starts getting the project of naming all the different animals that are coming to him. And as he's naming the different animals, it says the end of verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And again, the idea there is as God makes this declaration about why marriage is necessary, right afterwards, the Holy Spirit says, and then Adam's naming animals. And it's like, what what does that have to do with marriage? Adam naming the animals and realizing it says, ultimately, there's not a comparable helper. Well, here's kind of what I think is going on. As Adam's viewing all the different animals that God created in creation, no doubt he's recognizing how they have, as an illustration, corresponding partnerships among them and that they matched in certain ways. In other words, lambs did not work well with lions and turtles weren't good life partners for bears right and as well adam's also realizing as he's watching the animals come before him mr bear mrs bear oh yeah mr and a miss and he's recognizing this need that exists in his life god's letting him see his need for a life partner even as I think at some point, God kind of makes us sense that reality as well, that we need a compatible life partner and we desire that. And God is going to take initiative in the marriage arrangement process. And as we look at God creating Eve and then putting the marriage together, it's beautiful to be reminded that Adam's wife was in God's mind way before she was ever in Adam's arms. And that's amazing to me. That God already had in his mind what he wanted for Adam, and he had it all planned and brings together the process before he ever delivers the two of them into an encounter. And to me, look, that's what makes marriage so sacred. When you realize that all over the passage, this is a God thing. It is a divine thing. That makes marriage incredibly sacred. And look, folks, that's why there's such an attack by Satan on the marriage relationship in our world. Because it is the only institution that comes to us prior to the fall of sin. The only institution. 
government, school. The only thing we have prior to sin is marriage. There's something extremely sacred about that. So look with me at verse 21 through 23. It says, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib which the Lord had taken from the man, he then made into the woman. And then he brought her to the man, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So for the sake of time, let me focus on a couple main concepts here of God's original paradigm of what the marriage relationship is here. Notice, first of all here, that God specifically made the woman that he intended for the man. And, and let me explain what I, what I mean by that. Rather than taking time to talk about how the process happened, taking the rib out and so on and so forth, that what I marvel more about is the very fact, as I said a moment ago, that God was intentionally with thought and, and you know, wisdom and care and love uniquely thinking about the life partner that Adam himself would need. That, that God himself was deeply involved thinking about custom creating Eve just for him. How she would look, her temperament, what her strengths would be to be different from him, to be a corresponding helper, to assist, you know, what would bring the most satisfaction to Adam as well as ultimately to Eve as well. And really what you begin to see is it says here that the Lord, verse 22, made the woman. Again, what it's reminding us is God custom designs the first two spouses. And let me mention why I'm bringing that to your attention, because God hasn't changed. Nothing's changed in human history. God does throughout all history the exact same thing. He custom designs the spouse that he specifically wants for us. Now, when I think about Psalm 139, it tells us that God there knits us together in our mother's womb. The idea is, you know, as God's, the picture there, you know, God takes okay, well, a little bit of blue thread and a little bit of this, and, and God's knitting us together like this artwork, this unique individual that we're supposed to be unlike any other person on the planet. So not only does God create you uniquely, but that means that as God is creating you, knitting you together in your mother's womb, in his mind also was, oh, and she needs to look just like this because that's exactly what Tony would like. And she needs to have this exact temperament because that'll balance his craziness in this area. And, and he needs to have these particular strengths because that'll really help her in those areas of weakness in her life. And, and again, God thinking through all that, to me, that's phenomenal. Think about God was thinking about you as he was weaving and putting together the life partner that he, that he intended for you. When he was knitting them together in their mother's womb, he was already thinking, oh, I can't wait until John sees her. He is, whoa, he's going to just, he's going to be amazed. I can't wait until she discovers what he's like. This is the guy I've always needed. It's so evident. This is why I should marry him. And God thinks about all that in advance as he's making us in his original purpose and the reason I'm emphasizing that is because that should remove, in times of temptation in our lives, ever questioning if you're with the right person. You are with the right person. God custom creates the right people to be with one another. 
It's from the original design. God made Eve custom designed for Adam. So we should never start to think whatever's going on, oh, maybe I'm not with the right person. Look, God designs the right person just for us and mine, and there are differences by design. And as I said earlier, don't try and change them. Appreciate them. Realize that God knew you and what you'd be like. He made you one way, and then he made them differently so that you would be perfect, compatible partners, and we should value that in our lives. And not only does God make the woman, but then it says also, verse 22, that he brought her to the man. In other words, God arranged the circumstances to establish the marriage relationship. God caused them to ultimately meet and connect in the way that they did. God was sovereignly superintending through all that. Through the years of your life, God was already in his mind orchestrating how it would happen. And even the things of the the fact that we would have chemistry and connection with that person rather than anyone else in a specific way. You know, I think myself personally, verse 23, as God brings the woman to Adam and Adam says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman. People have often rightly said before, the idea is that as Adam gets a first glance at Eve coming to him, as he hasn't had her yet, the idea is instead of saying woman, he said, whoa, man, wow, that's God what you intended for me. And how wonderful that God himself does that in all of our lives to realize that our marriage relationship isn't just something ultimately it was kind of our idea, but that God did this, that God brought us together with each other and again that's crucial because that causes our perspective to have a much higher accountability about our marriage relationship see if two people say well it's just a piece of paper or you know it's just of course they're going to have a different perspective well then let's just let's just separate but when two people can look and say wait a minute god made this specific person to be my life partner They're the best thing in the world for me. I need them. And God made me for them, and they need me. And God put us together. That's why Jesus says what God has joined, let not man separate. And see, when you can truly believe as a married couple that God actually put the two of you together, made you come together, brought you to one another, that causes the sacredness of your marriage to rise to a really high level. And then it's not about your personal happiness. Then it's about what does God want for our marriage? Because God did this. It's sacred. This is divine. And it gives a whole other level of, you know, kind of recognizing if I try and do something to interrupt this, I'm trying to fight against something God did. And it causes us to be much more encouraged in the area of commitment. Well, verse 24 and 25, we kind of get the first marriage ceremony, if you would. It says for that God declared, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So, again, here you have the first marriage relationship taking place. Notice uh, the only people at the marriage relationship, Adam, Eve. God apparently is conducting the marriage ceremony. There's no pastor present. There's no priest there. There's no judge. The witnesses are the animals. So, again, who's marrying them? God is. God is. You know, I do a marriage ceremony for a couple, though I stand in as a human instrument. I truly believe, I do anyway, I believe God's doing something. 
I believe God's doing a miracle of joining two lives together and that we're just participating in some degree, even as they did in the original design in the Garden of Eden as God joined them together. And notice in verses 24 and 25 here, you begin to see really what God's original function for marriage was. Two things particular are evident in verse 24, and that's this, complete independence from parental care or control any longer. They're to leave father and mother and a complete dependence upon one another as a husband and wife. And those two things are essential for a healthy and proper marriage relationship. Keep in mind, as God's making the declaration in verse 24 there, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Did Adam and Eve have parents? They didn't. So what's God doing? He's looking down through the ages of human history. So this is how important it is to God that this be the way that marriages function. They didn't have a mother and father to technically leave. God was talking about marriage throughout human history, down through the ages. And in marriage, it is supposed to be, it needs to be that a married couple leaves behind their prior family status. It, it's a decision to separate, to become independent from your prior family unit that you've been living with, a couple to detach from support, and provision, and from control in any way, and begin to function independent in their adult lifestyle. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Not living in your parents' basement, not continuing to have your parents help pay your bills. That's not marriage. Marriage is leaving father and mother, beginning to function in a way with independence and no interference of parents. That's to be discontinued in a practical and a logistical way in how a couple functions. That's part of God's design. And that boundary has to be practically established and protected by the couple. And that new family unit has to be respected as a separate family unit now. And to give that role is necessary. And the couple must recognize that. And each spouse has to do their part to properly, to some degree, how it works, disconnect. It's a necessary thing. And look, that's not just a necessary thing when couples get married younger. That's something that some couples are still struggling with and they're 40, 50 years old. Their, their, their family is way too involved in their marriage. And the input of their mom or their dad or, or the control of their parents is having way too much coercion upon what goes on in their family life or their marriage life. And God says, no, there needs to be this independence, this separation. It's important. And why? Because it's only when you leave that dependence you once had that you can then be fully dependent and joined he says to your spouse the idea is you disconnect from that so that you're forced to connect in the marriage relationship in every degree with the person that you've married he says you shall be joined adam was to be joined to his wife that is fully joining yourself uniting together in a shared experience so that you now function dependent upon one another you used to have a level of dependency on your old prior family status. Now you have to, in all ways, do life together in full partnership, working to survive, doing what you have to do to pay the bills and to work through adult challenges and achieve life goals, and you're sharing hardships, right? And you're assisting one another as you grow and develop and go through different seasons of life. The point is you're doing life together because it's a united partnership with the person that you committed yourself to do. So God's design, understand, the Bible is clear, is to bring an end of two separate lives and to make one shared life. 
It says there, he shall be joined to his wife, look at verse 24, and they together shall become one flesh. Two become one. They shall become one flesh. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, for they are no longer two, but one. One person now. That's God's heart for the marriage relationship, a completely unified experience. And why is that important? Because from God's perspective, he sees that miracle taking place. That means everything that one spouse does now directly influences the other spouse, right? In that one flesh relationship, if I decide, you know, I'm holding a bowling ball in my hand and I decide to let go of the bowling ball and let it fall on my foot, well, the same hand that let it go, the whole body's feeling the experience, and that's the idea. It's a shared existence, so everything that one spouse does directly impacts the other because it's a shared life, which means this by way of application. When you're married, you should no longer think like an independent person at all, ever again. Well, I'm an individual. Well, I understand that to a degree, but you're married. So you share your life together with another person in every sense, everything that happens, everything that's experiencing. One person should no longer think independently because everything that you do, your decisions, affects the other partner. As a married person, you should no longer function like an independent person either. You should never allow yourself not only to think that way, but you should never function like you did when you're single. You don't have the right to do that anymore. You're not supposed to do that anymore. And if, to the degree that you do, you, you'll know that you're having marriage problems because that'll be a source of tension at times. Again, married people are not supposed to function like single people, right? I always have to tell the single people, look, single people aren't supposed to live like married people. You shouldn't be living together. You shouldn't be sleeping together. But married people also aren't supposed to function like single people. You're supposed to be functioning like a married couple, sharing your life experience. God makes us one, but we have to practically then work at that oneness, learning how to operate together, being considerate, and learning how to function in unity like a team, recognizing our differences, but seeing, okay, how do we function as a unit like a team? You know, you have different talents in different positions, but the idea is the team to succeed, and that's the idea. We got to work at that oneness, and he amplifies upon that in the last verse, verse 25. He says, the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not Ashamed. So again, in the marriage relationship, we also see that God's original design was that there be total intimacy and complete transparency of being unashamed with our life partner. Now, certainly in the strictest sense, of course, verse 25, God is endorsing the sexual expression between a husband and a wife in the boundary of a marriage relationship where natural sexual desires should be exercised as a part of bonding and a way of expressing love towards one another and procreation. Again, the, the, the greatest fulfillment of two becoming one flesh is when you have a child. Because 23 of my chromosomes and 23 of her chromosomes, that is correct, right? Produce one child. So two literally become one flesh when you make a child. But the idea there, of course, is, is the intimate aspect of sexual expression. Now, again, God says there's nothing shameful about that. Now, in, in our session after lunch, which will be a brief session, we're going to address that because that will help you stay awake after lunch, which is why I put that there. But let me express what I think is important that a lot of times gets overlooked when people read this passage here in verse 25. 
beyond just physical intimacy alone, I think there was a whole other way that God intended that this would apply for our marriage relationships, this idea of the husband and wife being naked and unashamed with one another. And that is in this, that there would be complete transparency and openness in every aspect of our marital experience. You know, the word naked there in the Hebrew was used for a tree showing forth its fruit openly on its branches. And the idea there is exposure of what's true of oneself. What's true of the tree inwardly, it exposes it outwardly in its fruit so that it's completely evident. It's not hidden. It's fully disclosed. And I think the implication there is just open, real, authentic living with one another as a husband and a wife. That we're fully transparent. That we're completely naked, if you would, with one another unashamed to just be who we truly are, nothing covered, nothing hidden. Again, if we think about why do we wear clothes as human beings, I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? The purpose of wearing clothes is to cover up because it wouldn't be appropriate for everybody to see you naked. So we wear clothes to cover up. And in the same way, that's true physically, that you only expose yourself and that nakedness to your spouse. Well, that's true in every other sense. God gives you one person who's a life partner who you don't have to cover up with, who you don't have to pretend with, who you don't have to be ashamed about what is true about you. You don't have to be covering anything up with your spouse. You can be, more than that, we should be completely naked with our spouse. We should never be trying to hide anything. We should be totally open and exposing everything about us, letting them be aware of everything. Nothing hidden. Should never be anything unknown between the two of you as a husband and wife. There should never be any secrecy. Everything that's going on in your life spiritually, emotionally, financially, physically, whatever. In marriage, we are not supposed to have, listen, privacy. If you still desire to be entitled to your privacy, you're misunderstanding what marriage is. When I do premarital counseling, I always tell couples this all the time. I say, look, if you still have any desire to be independent or have privacy, don't get married because that's not what marriage is. Marriage is full, naked, undisclosed, com- you know, complete awareness of everything about you because you're sharing everything with another person and that you don't hide or cover anything up. It's such an important aspect of the marriage relationship because we owe this to one another as husbands and wives. If we're going to live a one flesh shared experience, we owe them our nakedness, if you understand what I'm saying. They need to be aware. They need to be able to know everything about us, spots, warts, and wrinkles. And, And honestly, folks, what a gift to get one person, to get one person in your life that you can live like that with. And they will love you unconditionally still. And they will accept you because of the commitment that you share and that you get one person in life that you don't have to be ashamed with. That you can allow them to see everything about you in your struggles and the times where you're growing as you're working through things. You don't have to protect or put on airs. Again, you can let them see everything about you and you need to let them see that. And again, this works both ways. We should also never shame our spouse for being vulnerable with us. Shame on us if we ever do that. They get one person that they can be real with, 
one person they can be vulnerable with and authentic with in their struggles and the things they're going through. And they get one person who shouldn't shame them but give them unconditional love and unconditional acceptance, that they can have that support. We are each other's best accountability to one another. And this is really where the word, it's the key word, commitment comes into play, right? That's the word that's getting lost in marriage today. The word commitment to maintain a marriage. When you and I got married, we made a commitment. We made a commitment to something, a commitment to a lifelong relationship, right? Nowadays, we video marriages, which is great because then we can even go back and show them, look, you stood there and said in front of all those people, for better and if it gets worse, if sickness comes, if poverty and financial challenges come, whatever, any struggle, till death do us part. Look, this becomes the difference between, we might say, conditional love and commitment love. Conditional love is basically, I love you because of this, or I love you if you continue to stay like this. But if that changes, I don't think I love you anymore. That's conditional love. God doesn't want conditional love. God wants commitment love, which says, I love you despite this. I love you even though I know this about you. And I will stay with you till the end because I'm committed to you. And because love is a choice and it's not a feeling. Marriage is a covenant, and a covenant is a solemn, binding relationship and commitment meant to be kept unless death brings an end to it. That's what marriage is. That's why Jesus said again, the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. And whatever God is joined, let not man separate. Look, we all know to some degree, because our lives are touched by it a lot in our current generation, in divorce, one thing we can all agree, nobody wins. I mean, let's just be real. Nobody wins. Nobody wins in divorce. It just causes hurt and damage and baggage and struggle. Nobody wins. That's why Jesus says, look, what God has joined, don't let man separate. The marriage relationship is joined by God, but we have to maintain it. That's our stewardship. My stewardship as a husband, Trisha's stewardship as a wife, is we have to invest and maintain that oneness, and that works best with God's help as the unifying bond. Let me read to you Ecclesiastes 4 as we prepare to close. It says this. Listen to what it says. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person fails or falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated but two can stand back to back and conquer. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. Again, the value of partnership, marriage is the greatest experience of that. And to the degree that God becomes that third strand in the marriage braid, two people's lives intertwined with God through the center, to the degree that God is our first commitment in our life personally, and that's our first relationship, and to the degree that God is the central thread of our marriage relationship, folks, that is where comes a strong, unbreakable bond. Because you start to realize, look, this isn't just about us or our happiness. 
This is a divine, sacred thing that God set in order and did in our lives, and we need to honor God with this. We need to look to God for help with this till death do us part. God desires two lives to become one and help each other. God does not want a married couple, listen, to just miserably coexist under the same roof. And that's what a lot of people are doing. They're just miserably trying to coexist like business partners under the same roof, doing their jobs, doing their tasks. Look, God wants way more than that. God wants a strong team where we learn to cooperatively work together, appreciating one another, learning how to function as a team so we can succeed. So my question to you is simply this. Honestly, are you coexisting or are you working cooperatively, learning how to function as a good team? Don't choose coexistence. Choose cooperative living as life partners to be a strong team. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this section of the Word of God and the opportunity to be able to read, Lord, just the original design of marriage and what was on your heart when you first created it and established it. And God, you change not. And so, Lord, I'm naive enough to believe that your heart for marriage is the same today for us as it was for Adam and Eve. So help us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to think through these things and the other aspects of what we'll be able to discuss and talk about. Lord, help us now to put into practice working uh, on the oneness by our investment in learning and listening to the things we'll talk through in the remainder of our time. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen.